my young son Eric in Florida had a motorcycle accident and he broke some bones in his wrist. And of course this happened like a month ago. He didn't tell me until it started. But anyway, if we could remember him. This is Eric? Eric, yeah. Bob, my uh, son and daughter-in-law who live in Spain today, they have gone through IVF. This is the eighth time, well, with no success. And Sorry, they've gone through what? In vitro fertilization. Oh. Um, this is this today is the eighth time, and they've had no success prior to this. And today is the day that they do the transfer. And so, if we could just pray for them, that really that 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 they come to some peace with what God wants for them. What's um, his name is Michael. Michael. Her name is Winnie. And Winnie. And Winnie. By transfer, you mean of the implant? The, the, yeah, the implant, yeah. Yes. The fertilized yeah. egg. Yeah, right. Yes. Outside. Wow. Yeah. It's it's been a, it's been very very. Yeah, hard yeah. Hard. I'm sure. I'm sure. Very hard. Yeah. Wow. A friend of mine, Bill, who passed away a week ago. Bill, which is yeah, Bill. Bill, who is. Everybody else. And then Dick Carpenter, friend of ours, is. What's going on there now? Well, he's he has sepsis and uh, but he's healing very well, so he's come a long way in the last week. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our lives from you, um, the gift of yourself, particularly in the Mass. We carry your life within us, your actual being. Um, help us to be strengthened, to give ourselves to receiving it fully. It's like an implant um, to give us life. Um, let it be. Let our strength be great enough to give ourselves to receive um, you um, and find in you um, the power for doing those things um, we can't on our own. Um, ask a special blessing on this group um, for any intentions we carry. Help all of us to be careful of our sins, to put them away. Um, ask that all of us um, be helped in that way. Um, strengthen us to open ourselves to move with you and to bring you to everything we do, particularly to those areas of the world where um, you're not known or not wanted. Um, um, we ask a blessing on Dick and his healing. Continue to stay with him. Um, um, for Eric, um, help his <laughs> help his break to heal. Even more importantly, help him to be careful of his mother um, to stay close to her and things that she would want to know about. Um, sorry, Bill. Um, Don, that's your friend, yes? Um, um, receive Bill into, he died. Receive him into your kingdom. Forgive his sins. Um, death 
are becoming a regular part of our prayers weekly. Um, help us, particularly from what we're learning in our reading, not to look past things, to, to understand signs, um, the writings, the leaves falling, the words on them, um, the reminders, um, that we don't know when it's going to happen for us to take seriously. These may be last days, we don't know. Father's homily yesterday was, let us approach the altar as if it's going to be our last one. Let it be so for us um, to take seriously our last days, to prepare to meet you. We ask a special blessing on uh, Michael and Winnie. How hard... Um, The readings are today, your words to us, what, what would be the worth in anything that we could exchange our lives for? Our life is so dear. Take it away and everything else disappears with it. We all want life um, and we want it to continue. Having children is a way of doing that. Um, Whatever the difficulties between Michael and Winnie, let them pass. Help them to conceive this child. Um, if it's not to be, um, let them look to other things, adopting or finding your will, whatever it will be. Um, but in this instance, um, if these things can be done, help them to conceive a child. Um, we ask all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. We've got a good bit to do today, and, and I should warn you, this, this, it's not going to be X-rated, but it's going to be R-rated. We're going to look at some really ugly things today. Just warning you. Um, if ugly things offend you, you might want to get up and leave now, because um, remember when we did Dante's Inferno, I, I think I warned you that, that we were meant to take hell seriously, and if we were, gonna, we were gonna go into hell with Dante, we should ask for some courage. There's some ugly things that Melville's laying out for us here, so I'm just forewarning you, um, letting you know. Um, Let's turn to Blake and um, do a couple of more of his pieces, and then we'll start another day. <clears throat> Remember, Blake is the first of the great romantics. Um, he's the only one to really deal explicitly with religious themes. And um, you remember, you all remember the piping, Piper, right? We, I read that, didn't I? Where he. It's a poem about his calling, that he moves from piping an instrument and he meets this child, it's an image of an angel, who weeps to hear him play. And he's so moved by what Blake does that he asks him to sing. And then when he hears Blake sing, he weeps again and then says, now sit down and write. And remember, if you look through those stages, that movement from an instrument to singing to writing is a movement away from particular circumstances to something more universal. Because when you play an instrument, um, only those people who are within hearing range can hear you. 
So if you've got a prophetic message, it's limited, right? If you sing, um, you're still, if there's something prophetic, it's only going to be given to those people who are within range of hearing your song. One of the differences between an instrument and a song is words are introduced now, which means he's moving in the direction of something more universal, the logos, that words speak to us in ways sounds can. So even if we hear a piece of music or we're moved, to hear a piece of music plus lyrics is a different thing because lyrics bring ideas, conceptual things. Um, they make us aware of conceptual things. So we're already moving in the direction of something even more universal. And then to write means it can be propagated everywhere. The word can be taken everywhere. So in an interesting way, we're learning something about prophecy itself, the nature of prophecy and art, again, just with that one poem. And remember that um, so, so much of his poetry, um, like the works of prophets, is prophetic in the sense that he's aware that England has lost its Christian faith, that he's speaking to a people um, that has turned away from God, like the Jews in the ancient world, that, that Christians are losing their faith, and calling them back. Okay, so we read those first two poems. Turn to page two. I'm going to just read two um, um, parts from larger works. The first one's Jerusalem, the next one is Milton. These are just passages from uh, much longer works, okay? And both of them have the same spirit. Um, he's calling a people back. Um, he wants to see England recover the spirit that it once had. So, from Jerusalem. <coughs> England, awake, awake, awake. Jerusalem, thy sister calls. Why wilt thou sleep the sleep of death and close her from the ancient walls? What a, his, I've said this before. His lines are so childlike. You know, a sixth grader could, could write these lines. They're so simple. But um, look at how ominous that line is. Why wilt thou sleep the sleep of death? The turning away from God, doing whatever we do that separates us from him means we've chosen death. Um, that's our choice with what we do with our life. Why wilt thou sleep the sleep of death and close her from thy ancient walls? Thy hills and valleys felt her feet gently upon their bosoms move. Thy gates behold sweet Zion's ways. Then was a time of joy and love. And now the time returns again. Our souls exult to London's towers. Receive the Lamb of God to dwell in England's green and pleasant bowers. From Milton. This is a long poem, too. Because the, 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 the tendency, the tradition following Milton was, this is really important, and I didn't say this before, I should have. Milton was looked at one of the first great Protestant prophet poets in Paradise Lost and his other works, he was seen as a, remember England is Protestant at this time, com almost completely, the, the, the Catholics were um, disenfranchised, chased out, they couldn't observe mass, lots of priests were executed, put in the tower, imprisoned, um, con um, church properties were confiscated, so it's solidly um, Protestant and Milton is the Protestant poet of the time. 
he speaks for a Protestant vision of the world. So following Milton, um, in some ways even more than Shakespeare, I, even though in, in my mind there's no comparison, Shakespeare and Dante are just the two most extraordinary poets I've ever written, but Milton was so powerful, after he wrote, poets tended to measure their verse against his. If they were going to do anything, they had to take Milton seriously. That's how important he was. What correlation was he drawn between England and Jerusalem? Say again, Mike? What was his correlation between England and Jerusalem? A cho wow, it's a good question. A chosen people, you know, they're singled out. Milton is the great poet of the 17th century. It's a Protestant world. It's a Christian world. There's a renewal. There's a reformation going on. Oh, I see. That's right. And um, England would have been looked at at the center of this. You know, all the nations are separated. It used to be one faith, but all the nations are separating out and they're becoming independent nations. But England was the, the most powerful at that time. So, and, and, but this is also, a, you know, from the way that I presented it, Blake sees himself as consciously prophetic. So to call England back would be analogous to the Jews being called back to Yahweh, to go back to God. Um, that Jerusalem was an image that the, um, that the English should have taken seriously and didn't. So, from Milton. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the continents divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? How could that be? You know, this is an industrialized world. It's destroying nature. I mean, it's, <laughs> we've got Francis calling, you know, people back to, to be more careful of what we do with nature. The beginning of it is here. Um, and was Jerusalem built here? That is, how could something like a holy city have existed in the midst of this industrialized, in Blake's terms, satanic culture? And was Jerusalem built here among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear. O clouds unfold. Let the heavens open. Bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. That's the song from Chariot of Fire. Yeah, have you all seen that movie? One of them. Chariots of Fire? Oh, God. Huh? Yeah, it's one of my favorites. I mean, I, there was a time when that was among my top five. If you haven't seen that movie, Chariots of Fire, you want to you you see it, sit down in an evening, order it from Netflix, or go buy it on Amazon or something. It's one of the most extraordinary movies I've ever seen. And interesting, the guy who played the lead part was homosexual. Wait, let me go back. The movie's about Eric Little. He was a Scots Presbyterian, if I remember. Very committed in his missionary work with his sister. His family was very religious. Deeply committed to missionary work. And Eric Little and Abrams um, was Jewish who had entered, I can't remember if it was Cambridge or Oxford. Two great runners. 
who, who didn't know each other, although soon in the movie Abram learns of Eric Little because Eric Little doesn't lose a race. He's so fast. He's so fast. No technique, no technique at all. It's just this burning desire, you know. And he runs for God. And um, he's chosen for the Olympics, and I can't remember the year. Anyway, the guy who played Eric Little, who, who takes his faith out, speaks to people the way um, fundamentalists so often do. I don't know what the wrong with Catholics here, but um, he goes out and he speaks to people, and they're very inspired by his words because they come from deep convictions. The guy who played Eric Little was homosexual, and he converted after that playing that role. He was so moved you know, to step into that part. Um, there's one point in the movie, um, if I can, my, I haven't spoken about this in ages, so I may not get it right here. His sister's distraught because he's going to um, participate in the Olympic Games, and she thinks that he's losing his faith for him to get caught up in, you know, this is a very fundamentalist way of looking at things. She really was concerned that he was losing the mission, his mission, and they're out in this Scott's meadow, um, middle of the movie, and she expresses her grief to him. There's no anger, it's just she's sad and, and a little bit upset. He turns to her and he said, God, if I can... God. He said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Those words are etched in me, um, among the most moving words I think I've ever heard in a movie. God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. How many of us feel that pleasure when we're doing things that we love, that God has given us gifts to do, instead of pain, because lots of us grieve and complain about things. Or, um, we're supposed to feel a pleasure in doing those things, probably most of all because they're so hard. You know, they come from our greatest gifts so often. Anyway, good movie. You should all, if you haven't seen that movie, you should see it. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Okay, let's, let's start. I want to do this review very quickly so I can get to the, the, the good stuff, the dark stuff. Um, quick, quick review. We've seen the last couple of weeks, last week, more then than before, we see the ship as an image of American industry. Um, and what we, what we learned when we read those chapters was that, um, that people who initially came to this country um, to found a city on a hill to escape religious persecution so that they could practice their religion here, had turned that religious um, fervor, I don't want to call it energy, but the, the intensity of those convictions and directed them towards a business. So what we see in that business is an, um, a great irony. Remember when Melville describes um, Quaker and Bill did. This is on page one, 110, I think. I'm going to fly through these pages, you guys, so it, you don't have to look at them, but um, let's see, 110. 
Yeah, middle of 110. Now, Bilded, like Pelig, and indeed many other in Nantucketers, was a Quaker. Remember, the Quakers, um, at the core of their belief is this um, non belief in nonviolence. They are pacifists. They, they, are, they couldn't be more against war. Um, go down a couple of lines. For some of these same Quakers are the most sanguinary of all sailors and whale hosters. They are fighting Quakers. They are Quakers with a vengeance. There are all those, um, on page 111, all those descriptions of the ship moving out to conquer the ocean, to, to subdue it, to, to make it serve them, and this spirit of violence to, to wrest a living from the ocean. <coughs> At the bottom of, um, let's see, um, yeah, at the bottom of 111. The refusing from some conscientious scruples to bear arms against land invaders, yet himself had um, illimitably invaded the Atlantic and Pacific. And though a sworn foe to human bloodshed, yet had he in his straight body coat spilled tons upon tons of Leviathan gore. So um, we see that, that, um, that what was once this very powerful religious conviction has lost its bearing and turned itself now um, into a different spirit because it's become economic. So it has that same religious intensity, but it's got a very different outcome now. Um, on page 85, go back to 85 and 86, um, remember that this is the, the, the night following their first meeting with each other on page 85 at the top, um, Ishmael and Quiquig, I think, are in bed smoking at this point and, and talking together. Um, they're already becoming fast friends. Remember that in the morning, when in the first morning, when Ishmael woke up, he found Quiquig's arm over him and he declared themselves married. Um, <laughs> at the top of 85, um, now remember, the, the opening chapter shows us an Ishmael who is disillusioned, de I don't know, depressed may be too heavy, but he, there's something morbid in him at work. He's bringing up funeral lines, he has that image of taking a gun, throwing himself on a sword. There's something close to suicide, and his answer to this is to get to sea. And we saw that, I read that passage, where he makes it clear that he's hiding from God that if he were more open, he would be suspicious of what he's doing because he doesn't even know the, the captain, anything about the ship that he's going to sail out on. So he's, he's, there's a dark underside to him. And here, because of what's happening between him and Queequeg, he feels his heart changing at the top of 85. The fire burning low in that mild stage when after its first intensity has warmed the air, it then only glows to be looked at the evening shades and the phantoms gathering round the casements and peering in upon a silent, solitary twain. The storm booming without, a s without in solemn swells. I began to be sensible of strange feelings. I felt a melting in me. No more my splintered heart and maddened hand were turned against this wolfish world. This soothing savage had redeemed it. He's a Christian. And it's the savage that most Christians look down on who's opening his heart. Mm. You know, it, it, I mean, think about um, 
encountering a criminal, somebody in jail. I mean, how often graces come to us from sources we least expect. Um, 86, he, he's watching Queequeg engage in this ritual with Joho, um, his little idol. Remember, he whittles it, he articulates it. I love that image. Um, he, he's articulating something with God. That's a wonderful image. Um, I was a good Christian, born and bred in the bosom of the infallible Presbyterian Church. How then could I unite with this wild idolater worship, worshiping a piece of wood? And then he, he makes this argument. What is worship? To do the will of God. That's worship. What is the will of God? To do my fellow man what I would have my fellow man to do to me. That is the will of God. Now, Quico gives my fellow man, you know, do I, what do I wish this Quico would do to me? Why well, unite with me in my particular Presbyterian form of worship? Consequently, I must then unite with him in his. Ergo, I must turn a dollar. So I kindled the shit. So he engages to... Um, I can't imagine, I can't imagine a, Christ, a Catholic missionary, you know, the early Catholics when they, in the Middle Ages, or even after Christ's time when they were going to S Serbia or Japan or China, I cannot imagine them converting the, the peoples that they were asked to convert without engaging in their practices. And that's, that's why the, the, it's interesting because the Catholic Mass is the same. It's, it's the same as it's always been. But if you go to different countries, it has a different ethos. If you go to Africa, you're going to have different songs, different formal dress, because the church has absorbed those cultures into itself because it's the ethos of a people while it takes Christ out to them. So this is a funny, just a funny scene of, of Ishmael being at really at a crisis in his life. Um, and, and remember here, the, the logic's infallible. I mean, if you look at the logic, it's a, it's a syllogistically tight argument. He's, he's, Melville knows what he's doing with reason here. So we've, we, we've seen the ship go out, and we've seen that this change is taking place in Ishmael, um, subtly, um, but it's a real one. Um, we, we saw the ship's hierarchy. Um, remember, I, um, that you've got Ahab up here, and then you've got the mates. You've got Starbuck, um, Stubb, and Flask, and each one of them has got a harpooner who's a noble savage. So what, we, what we're giving in the, heart, the structure of the ship and its hierarchy is an image of authority and the way it works. And the, the most important thing to remember is that um, Ishmael says that these were the brains Ahab was the leader. These were all white men. They are um, European and American by birth. And the, the noble savages are, are, are men who are good athletically. So they would be the ones to do the strong work of pitching a pole to cap capture the whale. But remember here, um, the most important thing it seems to me to take away from this is this. We know from the quarter deck, I want to read a passage from it in a minute. We know from the quarter deck chapter that Ahab takes control of this ship by appealing to the sense in all men that they've been wounded unfairly and they want to get back. I'm going to come back to that because to me it's at the center of this story. Um, nobody can resist Ahab. Nobody. 
Starbuck is the strongest of the three mates, and he bows down, he backs off. So what we see in these three products of a civilization, they're educated, they've got what we today would call good jobs, they're prestigious jobs, they're above the savages. Not a one of those men can answer the spiritual evil that Ahab presents to them. So what we see is, is Melville showing us that civilization can, can make men um, capable of running an industry, but they're absolutely incapable of dealing with evil. Not a one of them can do it. Starbuck backs down. Remember that line in the, the Queen Mab scene? I think we read from it when, when Ahab calls Stubb a donkey and a, you know, and, and Stubb gets really angry and wants to go back and doesn't. And then he starts troubling over it in his mind. And then he has that passage, I think we read it, didn't he? When he said, but think not is my 11th commandment and yes, to sleep. Yes. That his way of dealing with spiritual difficulties is to go to sleep on them or not to think about them. Now, how many men go through their lives developing a pattern like, that? I mean, a habit, not to deal with evil? Because what we're seeing in the story is a country, if this is an image of the country, a country's incapable, it's reached a point in its Christian faith where it's no longer, because it doesn't have that faith, it's dying, it's no longer capable of dealing with spiritual evil. It's gone to sleep. And um, Stubb, Flask, turn to page 159. Remember, and the, these, this is all laid out for us in these two chapters called Knights and Squires. And remember the irony of those titles? Because those are, those are honorific titles that belong to knights and lords in Christian Middle Ages. I mean, go to a CEO company today and look at the hierarchy. Would, the, would the, the supervisors just below the CEO or the heads of the department have in front of their title, Knights and Squires? <laughs> that Christian worldview is gone. So there's something of a parody here in, in his presentation of these men. On page 159, we finally get the flask, and it says this. So utterly lost he was to all sense of reverence for the many marvels of their majestic bulk and mystic ways. That is, he's going out to kill whales, um, and, but this is his attitude for that occupation. So dead to anything like an apprehension of any possible danger from encountering them. That in his poor opinion, the wondrous whale was, bu was but a species of magnified mouse. <laughs> so, <laughs> Starbuck backs off. Starbuck backs off. Stubb, the first thing that he does in the morning, what does he do? You remember? This would be a quiff. Grabs his pipe. He doesn't put his pants on, he grabs a pipe. How many men have this superstitious reaction to sort of get a hold of a physical, I think about men who wear their, I'm gonna offend somebody in here. I, I know a friend of mine who will never take off that buzzer. You know, even after he's left his job, he carries it around through the evening. When Stubb gets up in the morning, he picks up his pipe. Um, Flask laughs everything off. He minimizes things. He makes nothing of them. So here in this civilized hierarchy of men, we get a whole range of ways in which the, the most prestigious people in this industry respond to evil. Back away, don't think about it, 
minimize it. So what we're seeing is a country becoming weaker because it's, it's not dealing with the problem that Ahab presents to them. Um, and remember, these, these men are distinguished from everybody else because they're so conscious of everything. They're, they're, um, they're educated. They're, they're thoughtful, presumably thoughtful. The harpooners are um, noble savages. The difference between them and the mates is that they're unconscious. Everything that they do is instinctive. Remember how um, Ishmael picked up or jumped in the water to save that kid when the boom knocked it over? Nobody else did anything. And everybody in the dock stood in amazement looking at what he did. You can't help but admire that kind of athleticism. He's, he's so physically able. But once again, what we see is a whole class of people, because they are unconscious, they're instinctive, incapable of dealing with evil. There's nobody in this hierarchy who can answer Ahab. So what we're watching is a leader take a hold of a ship. In some ways, it's analogous to a leader taking a hold of a country. Um, and people being unable to, res to resist it. So in some ways, this is a pretty serious critique of something in America here. That, and that took us to the question. I, I want to come to it in a second. But um, we've looked at the two different ways of reading. And remember um, um, the Cytology chapter was pre presented um, by means of a, of, a, of a scientific way of classifying things. When you want to learn something, you put it in a class and then you identify its differentiate, those qualities that distinguish it from every other thing in its class. So he sets out the whale. People read that and <laughs> they're always complaining. I hear people complain about that forever. They say, it's so boring. Why did It's a parody. And we have to set it next to the chapter called Moby Dick where we get all these stories of, of prodigies, prodigi pr prodigious events, um, ubiquitous. They, um, there are these stories that Moby Dick is ubiquitous. He, there are stories of him appearing on one side of the ocean and simultaneously on the opposite side of the ocean at the same time. So we get all these stories that suggest that there's something um, numinous, something awful, um, even divine-like in this creature. So, and, and then the whiteness of the whale, remember, does the same thing, that we get this chapter describing all of these eerie effects that white things have. And ordinarily, we associate white, whiteness with innocence. Melville makes that little, or Ishmael makes it clear. But he has those, you know, descriptions of the fog. And if, if you guys ever watch horror movies or movies that are scary, you know that very often we'll come to a scene where white fog envelops it, and we... And it's frightening because you can't see through it, and you know there's something dreadful behind it. So he, he reminds us of all of the ways in which white, although it suggests goodness, as a privation, which is evil, because that's what evil is, a privation, it suggests something eerie and dangerous. So you've got two very different ways of reading the world, the scientific, we can call it mythic or storytelling, whatever you want to call it the other way. And we've seen that in Ahab and Ishmael. I want to just turn to this one last time because I, I, this is so important. Turn to the quarter deck, 
chapter, page 207. This is when Ahab gets command of the ship. And we looked at those chapters. Remember afterwards, Starbuck reflects on him. Ishmael reflects on him. That's Remember he said, I was the one who sent up my voice louder than everybody else. I hammered it. Um, do you remember those, those lines? They're so, um, they're so important on, on page 226. I, Ishmael, was one of that crew. My shouts had gone up. Um, a wild, mystical, sympathetical feeling was in me. Ahab's quenchless feud seemed mine. With greedy ears, I learned the history of that murderous monster against whom I and all the others had taken our oaths of violence and revenge. It's at this moment that the real nature of the quest gets formalized. It's, it's a quest for vengeance. I, this quote of Ahab's, is, or I mean Ishmael, is so important for the work. He's one of the crew. He's united. Um, Ahab will make that clear in all that he says. Go back to the quarter deck now on page 207. Page 207, he, he speaks about his injury and he, he works on the sympathies of the men and um, tells them that that's what he's come to see for. And the men get behind him at the bottom of 207. Starbuck um, responds negatively. He said he didn't come there to, um, for his captain's <coughs> vengeance. He, remember, he says, how many... Um, um, I came, I came, I'm game for his crooked jaw, not for the jaws of death too, Captain Ahab, it fairly comes in the way of business we follow. But I came here to hunt whales, not my commander's vengeance. How many barrels will fill thy vengeance, how many, how many barrels will thy vengeance yield thee, even if thou gettest it, Captain Ahab? You, that is, you can't quantify something. Like, I mean, this is going back to the Iliad. Um, Starbuck doesn't understand this completely because his whole way of looking at the world is in terms of quantity and money. It's a business mindset. Um, clearly what's going on with Ahab is metaphysical. He, he's dealing with the, the ultimate cause of that wound. Now go on over because this is where he makes it so clear, 208. I'm reading over this just to reinforce this so that everybody going forward will hold on to these major things because this is at the heart of the work. So he sees, recognizes Starbuck's uh, reluctance and tries to respond to him. 208, hark ye yet again, the little lower layer. All visible objects, man, are but a pasteboard, are but paste, as pasteboard masks. But in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth the molding of its features from behind the reasoning mask. There could not, this is St. Thomas, there could not have been a creation that shows such purposefulness unless there were a God. Because purposefulness and order suggest an intellect. Yes? You don't have this kind of order by accident, even though the modern world wants to say that. Wherever you've got purpose and order, you've got an intellect, there's a God, right? Can't be otherwise, because that's the product of the intellect. The question that Ahab's raising is, how do we explain all this evil in the world? Because remember, the Protestant mind looks at the world as depraved, inherently depraved. So Ahab wants to know if there's all this evil in the world, 
He wants to get to the evil behind it. This intelligence, this... Some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth the moldings of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. If man will strike, strike through the mask. How can this prisoner, he's a prisoner, we're pris- this is so platonic. Um, how can the prisoner reach out outside except by thrusting through the wall? To me, the white whale is that wall shoved near me. Sometimes I think there's not beyond, but tis enough. He tasks me, he heaps me. I see in him outrageous strength with an inscrutable malice sinewing it. That, inscru- that is, that, that there's a demonic purpose. That what the whale did to him was intentional. There was a malice behind it. With an inscrutable malice sinewing it, the inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate and be the white whale agent or be the white whale principle. That is, whether the white whale is a means of something, it's, a, it's an agent, it carries through something, or whether it's the principle, the source of it, it doesn't matter. Whether it's agent or principle, I will wreak that hate upon him, talk not to me of blasphemy man, I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. And he goes on. Um, so, we, we were watching two very different ways of reading the world begin to get clarified. It's not just scientific and mythic or storytelling, you know, as we're getting in these chapters. It's also Ahab and Ishmael. Ahab has got one purpose. He has one intent. He wants, he wants to get back at that whale. Ishmael, if, you, if you're paying attention, you know that chapter by chapter by chapter, he's beginning to look at the meaning of things. He wants to know what's behind them. So there's no intent to conquer it. It's to understand it. Um, so there's an openness Ishmael we don't see um, quickly um, the plot remember that um, in all of the works we've read so far they take um, a very definite form the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy, Winter's Tale, Hamlet. And every one of them, every one of them can be, can be described as the action of the peripatia, the action of the turn. Every one of them implies a turn in its center. In in a sense, it defines it. Um, I've said that this is Aristotle, the great works have a a turn and a recognition. The peripatia, the turn. So every story, every plot, every good plot, according to Aristotle, every, every story we've read implies an affirmation of reason. It's an affirming of reason that underneath our problems, reason is always at work. Remember the call of the church is always to bring reason and faith together. So this is not a small thing for us. Remember every story begins in medius race in the midst of things. It's not mathematical. It means every story begins in the middle of a problem. We've talked about this forever. 
um, you wake up one day and you suddenly learn your son's on drugs or your best friend's wife left him or, or um, your brother committed suicide, you know, I mean, whatever it can be. Um, we go through life and we feel like everything's sort of comfortable and under control. It's, it's the way we would like it, even though it should never be that way. We, remember what I said? We can never be at home here. If we, if we treat this world as if it's our home, then we're in trouble because we're pilgrims. We're not supposed to rest here. Our home is elsewhere. Christ came here as a pilgrim. He left his home. Um, we're member from St. Augustine and Dante. We are, we are um, peringer, peregrine, peregrine, peregrine tra um, travelers, journeyers. If we ever get too settled here, we'll always um, blame things when things don't go right, you know, because we want we want things to just be. I, I love the Hobbit. If any of you watch Fellowship of the Ring, you know, because you've got this wonderful Hobbit country where everything's peaceful and quiet, and suddenly, is it Bilbo gets uprooted, and and you know what happens? I mean, out of this very comfortable bourgeois world, it just comes, and not only that, but then it's under attack. I mean, it's under threat. It's going to get destroyed. So we want to live this idyllic life in America, and suddenly we find terrorists, you know, around everywhere, and, and security gates, and God, Suzanne, we were thinking, Thomas, um, our oldest, has a daughter in school here, and um, Thomas and Vic have been sick, and we offered to help by taking Evie to school this morning, and um, she has to be there by eight, and Suzanne was going to go get her, and she reminded me she has to go early because if she hasn't signed out for the child, they won't let her go. And if she gets there a few minutes late, she has to get in a line that's about a mile long of cars. I mean, what, how the world has changed. You know, you can't drop your children off anymore. And I watch it coming home from, you know, workouts that you, in front of school, you've got a, cars a mile long that, my God. God. Anyway. Sorry, <laughs> we, we, every plot is an affirmation, of, every good plot is an affirmation of the working of reason, the logos, that God is at work in our lives. And every story implies that, or there couldn't be a turn and there couldn't be a resolution. So no matter how bad the problems are, something is at work in us, the suffering that we endure to try to help things come out right, and however God is helping it. Because otherwise, how, in all these stories, how could things start out so bad, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, whatever, you name it, and still end up with a resolution? So here, remember, the opening conflict is, we've gone through this, the opening conflict is this sense of disillusionment and estrangement in Ishmael, that he's not at home, something's wrong, he can't name it, he can't understand it. He has to go away. He, he thinks that's going to answer it. And remember all the chance things that happen. He, he misses the boat and he ends up with Queequeg. So suddenly things get complicated. He's got a friend who's a cannibal. And when they get on board, they find themselves on board a ship whose captain is on a venge, vengeance quest. So they could, they could die for the worst of disorders, you know, by serving this captain. So things get complicated. We will reach a crisis. The crisis will unravel all the elements that are knotted, that are too confusing to see. 
the unraveling will take place and we'll see all the elements that were present in this, this opening problem. And that unraveling will be the, the, the condition for the resolution taking place, that it will be answered. What does that word denouement mean? Unraveling. Unraveling. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for asking that, Tom. Mm -hmm. um, but here, what I, the reason I wanted to put this out again, because we've looked at it before, is this. At the quarter, at the quarter deck, what is that, 36? I can't remember, chapter. At the quarter deck, the motion is, um, the purpose and the end of the, of the quest is defined. We know it here in the quarter deck. That everybody's engaged, taken up into Ahab's quest. So what happens, so we've left land, right? We've discovered that something's wrong with Christianity. We saw those passages. Um, Mrs. Hussey, um, Father Mapple, Peleg Bildad, Peter Coffin. In some way, every one of them was failing in a faith in some way. We, we have this opening critique we're going to see, and I said that when we enter C, we're going to enter, enter a metaphysical world. That Ahab wants to get to the root of evil, and what we see in Ishmael is, is like Ahab in one sense, trying to understand the metaphysical ground of everything. So he won't look at a chapter without, a, without revealing something about its nature that ordinarily we don't see. But I, what I wanted to, to focus on today are what I can only call setup chapters. I don't know what else to call them, you guys. Sorry about that. Setup chapters, and I'll get to that in, in a second, just what he's doing. But all of these are a preparation for what's about to happen when they encounter Moby Dick. So when we read them, we read them, I'm assuming, I mean, you got, you, I'm assuming that most of us, when we read them, don't find them very entertaining. They don't grab us. Because we're, <laughs> we're, we're nurtured on instant action. Something happened. You know, we, <laughs> if you look at the movies coming out of Hollywood today, I mean, there are all these CG things with, you know, I mean, you, you never get humans relating to anything each other anymore in Hollywood. It's just action stuff that's overwhelming. Um, so, so when we read these chapters, it seems to me we can ask what's going on. Two very important things are going on. So we can't miss them. These are set up chapters. That's how important they are. Now, this is all just quick um, review. And remember that, um, that, that one of the questions I put to you last week um, and I'm going to repeat it in a minute, goes to this issue of what the, what the book is about. Ordinarily people, high school teachers, think of this as a strange thing about a whale. You know, they just dismiss it as this amazing, improbable story, which is what the critics at Melville's time said of the work. They just blew it off. Um, the, the, the principal theme of every epic that we've read from the beginning is a refounding. Remember that. Everyone deals with the disorder of a people. That disorder has become so deep that it's, it's um, separated 
a people from the gods, the divine order. Every epic's been about that. Some individual emerges in this, from out of this people who's given a divinely appointed task. He has to do something nobody else can. It's by means of what he does that something is brought into this disorder to answer it. Nobody else can. It isolates him. There's a dark side to it. Um, he has to go through a darkness. But it's by means of him that something will be introduced that will help this people recover its relationship with the gods again. That was true in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. The pagan epics, Achilles had to bear it. Odysseus, Achilles with respect to honor. That there's this flawed sense of honor that people look at each other as objects, as booty, remember? Odysseus with marriages, there's a flawed sense of marriage. Everybody lives in the griefs of the past. They can't come into the present. Odysseus brings them in. The Aeneid, this, the disorder in the way that people look at the larger community of a city. Remember, all the cities in the Aeneid are dying. They're dying cities. They're caught in the past. God, I hate this when I think about what's happening to inner cities, you know, in our, how much they're stuck in the past, and, and the things that should be done to get them out, you know, that haven't been done. Um, Aeneas answered that. He goes on to found Rome. It will not be like the other cities. And we're, we're not talking about brick and mortar, although partly we are. Um, all the other cities are dying. Remember, Rome is the eternal city, the universal city. It's for everybody. So Rome is this image of a city in which people come out of their tribal identities, black, Italian, Turkish, doesn't matter, Chinese. They come out of their racial, ethnic, tribal backgrounds into this new kind of city. So Virgil shows it that there's this new possibility for, for man realizing himself in his brotherhood with all other men. That's Rome. I mean, look at that. If you put that together and, 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 and then put in the next step, Christ comes into the world. Tell me those epics don't have anything, to, they're not prophetic. I mean, it's stunning when you put them together and watch the line of development. Every epic's been about a founding. So one of the questions we have to ask here is, what's the disorder in America? Is there an epic hero? What's, what's his task? What's his burden? And how is this an answer to the disorder? Yeah? Is that clear? Because we're just, we're, we're, this is in that epic tradition. So that's a question we've got we've to ask ourselves as we go ahead, because at the ending, I'm going to come back. And, I mean, our last class, will, it'll be one of the questions I will want to ask you and spend some time. I'd like to hear your response to that. But, but my reason for asking it here is because two, two heroes, Ahab and Ishmael, are getting well-defined and separated out, even though Ishmael's still in the quest. The question that I asked last week is this. Um, and it was a serious, very serious question. If Ahab is an image of um, something American, what is he an image of? And remember I've said, if we don't learn to identify with every character, even the evil ones, we're not reading well. Because we're supposed to be learning something about ourselves here. If Ahab is an image of something American, quintessentially American, what is it? Remember, America came into a founding um, in religious terms. The whole thrust of its 
founding was religious, and I suggested that there's something potentially violent about America, distinct as a culture. Um, all foundings are violent, but ours was um, relig explicitly religious in nature. Um, and I, to back that up, I said, remember, if you look at the 19th century British novels, none of them deal with God. Blake is an exception as a poet. None of the romantics deal with religion for the most part. Blake's an exception. You can't find 19th century novelists dealing explicitly with God unless it's on the margins. Trollope is dealing with you know, the British church, the Episcopal church, but it's, it's, it's a structure. There's nothing, there's nothing like this. In America, you've got Hawthorne in the middle of the century writing Scarlet Letter, it's absolutely religious in its character, and you've got Melville doing this. So America's dealing with religious things, and it means it's also dealing with things that are potentially very violent. And the question that I put to everybody was, if Ahab is an image of something American, what is it? What, what is it we need to learn about ourselves as a people? The, the tendency to point fingers, to blame other people, to get so angry at what's been done to us to want to take it out in violence. That, that, that's, by the way, that's, I'm sure that's true of all people, so I'm not questioning that. I'm, but here it's quintessential, it's formed. I don't want to answer the question, I just want to put it out there. Where does this habit, why is, does this seem to be so intensely, purposefully American? To point a finger, to blame, to want to get back as a defining principle of our country. And I suggested two things initially. One is um, we, we separated from Europe to address a wrong that was religious. We left and came here to have a founding. And if you know anything about the founding, you know that in that founding generation, they were, also, they were already persecuting people who didn't believe like them. Um, the, the, the Catholics came and were looked down on um, other sects of Christianity. So we came here explicitly for a religious purpose to, a, to address a wrong, and in our American founding, we broke off from England to address a wrong. So there's something, but by the way, now, I'm saying there's a difference between doing something for something and doing something against something. The motives are very different. So it's important to look to, to see what Melville is asking us to look at here and try to understand its, its peculiarly American character. And the second thing at issue here is this. It's impossible to look at Ahab without understanding the central issue for that man is that he has been wounded. His power over the crew comes from their sense of having been wounded themselves and wanting to get back at him, right? So at the heart of this is a person who's been wounded who is a victim. He wants to address that, to get at the source of what wronged him. So in Moby Dick, what's at the heart of this story is this sense of universal suffering, that everybody in the world suffers. All of us are wounded. In America, what's the typical response? What do we do? It's gathering of power here. And we're watching two different responses here united, but eventually they're going to diverge. Ahab wants to get back. Ishmael shares that with him. They want, it, they, want, they want to answer this. 
and gradually Ishmael's going to dissociate himself from the quest. We'll see that when it comes along. But, but here at the beginning, it's just important to see. What's at the heart of this, this epic is the sense of being wounded. Remember, the fundamental difference between this and every other epic that's been written before is in every other epic, the source of the wound was another man. Um, Hector, Paris, taking Helen, right? Are we together? Am I going too quick? Hector, Paris took Helen, wrong Menelaus. Menelaus wants to get back. Hector and Achilles go at it. Um, Hector kills um, Patroclus, yeah? Odysseus, the suitors are ruining his home. And, and the marriages in Pylos and Sparta look back to the wrongs of the Trojan War. So every epic dealt with a wound, a, a, an injustice, but it was always a man. And it could be righted by dealing with that man. Yeah? Um, so every epic's had that quality to it. Here, the difference is it's not a man, it's nature. That there seems to be something sinister in nature. And Ahab wants to smash through that wall to get to the principle behind it. So we're in a different world. Now, now just wait one second. You know, if you, if you think about literature in the modern world, the, the two common things you hear from classrooms all the time is man against the city, man against nature. Where did that come from? That was never true before, not on a scale like this. So in, in Moby Dick, we're, we're dealing with a fundamentally modern problem, and it's American, in, in its particularly American form. Okay, so... So let me stop here before we go to what we're doing today. I want to look at just a couple of passages, and then um, I want to end with a town ho. You all got the message, didn't you? You've all read the town ho. So if I gave you a quiz on the town ho right now, you could all ace it, right? Yeah. Debbie, do you have a... Um, you said something about that Ahab had been wounded, and he's a victim. And maybe this isn't what you want to talk about right now, but I think that that's part of the problem is that, yes, you can be wounded. There's a difference between being wounded and seeing yourself as a victim. It's, it's because you can be wounded, but depending on what, how you perceive that wound, whether you are a victim, because if you're a victim, you have, somebody else has some control over you. Somebody, something, something, <coughs> some, the whale, the city, person, whomever, right. somehow has some control over you and your thought process and how you deal with your life. If you've been wounded, you can, you can, you can somehow overcome that. You can, because you have control over that. Whereas if you are a, if you perceive yourself to be a victim, then you are, in my mind, relinquishing some of your wrong power is the wrong word, but responsibility. Respon well, responsibility too, but it's also how you see yourself that I'm a victim. Let's be careful right now because it sounds like me like we're getting into a modern psychology and away from the book. Yes, yes. Let me let me respond this way to that if I can, um, and it's a really it's really good because you're going to the heart of things. And, let me try to respond this way. I want to be, I want to be really careful here. Um, I'm, I'm going to say anybody who is wounded is a victim because 
a victim means somebody's imposed his or her will or nature or whatever. So I don't want to avoid that word, although I, I know in the modern world um, that people want to respond to that because the sense of being a victim is so widespread in our culture. It, it is. Yeah, so let me just acknowledge that, but let me try to steer clear of that way of thinking about it for a minute. Um, I think we lose something if we get rid of that word or we don't do other things and I'm going I'm, tr I'm going to try to go I think where you were wanting to go um, if not tell me but um, if somebody hits us we're a victim we've been wounded period so I don't want to do away with that myself the, the question is anytime anybody hurts us and I'm taking it for granted that we all know that. The book is about the universality of wounds, or, or Ahab could not take control of that ship. He has control because everybody in it has, has been wounded and wants to get back. Getting back is, is part of it. So the, the fundamental question for me, from what I've learned in my reading and as a person, husband, father, is... Um, our call is to justice, to answer the, 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 the situation that led to the wound that we've received. Um, sometimes it may be just. I mean, to, for somebody to, if somebody's pushing you around, or if somebody comes into your house with a gun and you shoot them, you're, they're going to be wounded. They're going to be, you know, fatally or. We're asked to be just in whatever difficulty we respond. Now, how we do that is another thing. That's, that's a difficult question. But all of us are asked to respond to the injustices in the world by working for justice. The unborn, the people who can't speak, the marginalized, whatever, wherever you want to go. So I take it for granted that anybody who's been wounded is a victim. They've been victimized. Somebody's attacked, done something to them. Here's the, here's the so we, in the secular natural world, the pagan world before Christ came in, the greatest, one of the greatest virtues, the greatest virtue for the member, those of you did Dante, was justice. For Plato, Aristotle, remember the, the, the greatest problem facing the ancient world was how to be a just person. And I, we've gone over this a number of times. You can't be just to other people if you don't learn to order your own soul properly. How can you, how can you give what's due to another person if you don't answer those things in yourself? So the great virtue was justice, the law. Christianity comes in and says, yes, the law, but mercy as well. So it radically changes it, even though there's a continuity there. Here's the, here's the, the, the deeper question for me, if I can put it this way, and I, I, I don't want to spend too much time here, but it's this. When we're wounded, and all of us know them, wounds, it seems to me the question we're facing is we can be a victim in the way that you're describing passively and just let it go. We can work for justice. But there's something else that Christianity's offered, and it's this. Christ, Christ does, doesn't do anything to undermine justice. He goes to a cross to answer justice. I've tried to be as emphatic as I could about that in the Divine Comedy. He goes to a cross because he has to give satisfaction for a crime man committed against God. He's fulfilling justice. He's not undermined. He said he, he won't leave this world until he fulfills every iota of the law. He's not undermining justice. He's fulfilling it, but he does it with a divine love, and he asks us to follow him. 
So the, the question for all of us, it seems to me, when we feel wounds or hurts or whatever, is whether, is whether we work for justice in a way that will truly achieve justice and also bring a mercy to it so that we don't remain in a victim state. We learn to love, particularly when it's hard because somebody's hurt us, wounded us. Now, and if I can just leave it there. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah, I know, and let me just, but and I wanna go here for one, one more step because this goes back to the distinction that I was making in the opening week. Um, and remember, I, I really want you guys to take this seriously because it really makes me nervous. I wanted to set out what I believe are fundamental differences between the Protestant world and the Catholic. Um, but I asked everybody, I, I put that out be, because New England's largely Protestant. I didn't want to do that to exempt us. I, I tried to be as clear as I could to encourage everybody to see them, all of us, to see ourselves as a part of that failure, that Christianity's failing in the modern world and we have to, we have to see ourselves in that, seriously. If we don't and we exempt ourselves, I think we're in danger of being like the Pharisees. We, we've got to find ourselves in this. To, to, if there's something about us, we've got to learn about it so we can work to change it. One of the fundamental differences, if it's not the fundamental difference, the, the Catholic believes it's, it's a sacramental life. The sacraments, the, the miraculous work that God did, Christ did on the earth, is continued in the sacraments. We take communion believing that this is not a, commemor a commemorative act. It's not in the head. Remember, I made that distinction. When you go into a Protestant church, you get ministers interpreting the Bible. They can be very inspiring, but there's not a Mass. There's not a Eucharist. And in that sense, that's a, con that's a continuation of the rabbinical tradition with the rabbis in the temples interpreting Scripture. The fundamental difference in a Catholic and a Protestant world is that the center of the Catholic world is a sacrament, and the central sacrament is the Eucharist. When we participate in the Eucharist, we believe we're, we're trying to unite ourselves with Christ so that when violence is done, we're more able to make a sacrificial act on our own so that we just don't get back, victim, get back, victim, get back, victim, get back, you know that we break that, that we bring in something else. Now here's the question, because I, I indirectly, I didn't put it this way before, but I'm gonna put it this way now. This whole book is about a whole crew impotent, incapable of dealing with spiritual evil. Nobody on that ship can deal with it. This is the Protestant world. It, Ahab is, it, I mean, there's, he's a heroic man. I, you know that, I, I mean, my belief is the Tragic heroes always have something noble or there's no tragedy. Can, can a people deal with spiritual evil, spiritual evil, without a divine presence within them? Are we capable in our heads? What Melville's showing us, Melville's Protestant. He's showing us nobody on that ship is capable of dealing with Ahab. Not the ones who live in their intellects. They're all Christians. If we don't take a divine life into it and make it part of our own lives, how can we deal with spiritual evil in the world? We want our lives to be comfortable. What are we looking at in, in 19th century New England Christianity? 
It's a Christianity that's become too comfortable. It doesn't want problems. It wants to be comfortable and wealthy. What drives all the people in this world is cupidity. They want. They're going to they're going to ravish the ocean to get it. How much is that an image of us? Remember, I, the image I gave of Ahab is he's got that line running through his forehead, and he's got that description of a crucifixion. It's an it's a failed crucifixion. Christianity is failing in the same way that the Jews failed. Paul said the veil has come over the Jews. Jacques Maritain today said the veil has fallen over Christianity. So at the heart of this book, <laughs> these high school teachers teach this book like it's a whale adventure and it's an improbable story. And, um, at the heart of this book is at the heart of the problem for modern Christianity. Um, so this notion of a victim is really crucial. Either, either you identify, with, I mean, for a Catholic, either you identify with Christ by going to the cross with him, or you stay in this victim mentality, being bounced back and forth, never answering it. Now that, Melville's not dealing, that's partly me, you know, trying to orient our faith here, but the crucial thing that we've got to see here is this is fundamentally about being wounded, and there's a, a marked difference taking place right now because now it isn't another man. You know, it's all the things that we learned when we did the Ilinga. Now it's nature. Now it's more metaphysical in character. And we've got to learn to see that there's a metaphysical quality to it. Now I'll take a short question, but I want to get on. <laughs> so, because um, uh, I've, I've, we've got, I've got to get to these things to, to help round this out because it's crucial. So, but any, I hope that answered, Debbie. Thank you. Did it? Yes, yeah. It did. Okay. It's a really, it's a really important. It goes right to the heart of this book. You, if we've got a feel that everybody on board that ship is, they could not get pulled into that quest if if they hadn't felt their wounds deeply. Everybody, we all carry wounds with us. I've, I've been talking about that from the beginning. The, the wounds in the Iliad, the wounds in the Odyssey. Remember the Odyssey, all the marriages are living in the past. They're carrying wounds. The whole effort of all those epics, which is why I say that in some ways they just, they see Christ some way. The whole action of those epics is to come out of the past into a present that answers those wounds, every one of them. I think I would just sum up what you all just said. <laughs> as victim give back or victim forgive, as in forgiveness and mercy. Yeah, See, I, 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 would, I would only add victim give back or and, and victim working for a justice through forgiveness because Remember, we've talked mercy without justice is going to lead to problems. Justice without mercy is going to be too harsh. That everything, every, we, there's, Christ came to get on a cross to answer a sin. And I don't know why the modern world keeps forgetting that. At the heart of our problem on earth is, is achieving justice because we believe that's going to restore order to give people what's due to them. And one of the problems is we have such a bad view of each other. As children of God, we're supposed to see the image of God in each other and work for a justice divinely understood. And there's no way to achieve that without forgiveness or mercy. So I would just add that little 
on the cross, though, I know that you want to go on, but on the cross, it wasn't the last thing that Christ said, Father, forgive them before they know not what, what they, they do. do. Yeah, yeah. So be careful here, because you guys know a lot more. <laughs> Boy, am I ever going to see you guys again? Remember, remember at, the, at the heart of St. Thomas, at the heart of our church, remember when we did um, the Divine Comedy? This is so much a part. Remember, for us, the great struggle for us is bringing faith and reason together. Faith and reason, not one over the other. We, we believe in the, the Protestant, Luther and, and Calvin tended to look at reason as a bad thing. You know, we don't. Um, the great truth at the center of the Divine Comedy, remember, was learning to order our loves. Well, how do you order them if you don't even see the disorders? So the, the whole movement of that was, Dante wanted to climb up that hill. He couldn't until he learned to see his sins. I don't know why we're together as a group if it's not to help see through literature, see our sins and these extraordinary graces that are offered to answer them. Otherwise, I, I mean, I have no, no business being here if it isn't to strengthen that. He did say, but we're also here to learn to see to see our failings more clearly because every work is, every epic's been about them and also to find Christ. That was the purpose of our work, to, to see if we could find him or ordinarily we don't see him. And that means being more forgiving of those people who don't see precisely because they've not had an education to help see or go into the depths or, you know, um, and I'm talking about Catholics who've spent their whole lives as Catholics. Remember Dante's <laughs> hell is full. And Christ said, he said this week, didn't he? He said, lots of people who call out my name, I won't know them. Just, um, there's a real <coughs> fear we should have about all these things, I think. Okay, last here quickly. Set up chapters. Take a look at the at the table of contents just for a second. We're going to do this quickly because I've got to get to this. Take a look at um, if you look at at the chapters from the quarter deck, which is thirty six. Are you all on the table of contents? Mm -hmm. yep. Take a look at those things. The chart, affidavit, surmises, map maker, first loin, hyena, um, spirit sprout, gam, town ho, town, town ho story. Um, look at the monstrous pictures of whales, less erroneous pictures of whales, of whales in paint and teeth. Um, Brit, squid, the line, all of those. Two things are going on in what I'm calling these setup chapters right now. Two very, very important things. Here we are. This is out to sea. And this first group of chapters here, I'm calling setup chapters for a couple of reasons. Two things are going on, I think, that are important for us to see. One of them is that 
Um, Melville is covering his tracks. Let me try to make this clear indirectly too. How many of you have read the Scarlet Letter? Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if I told you. I, I was going to, I actually did my dissertation on Hawthorne. I read, I think, the Scarlet Letter when I was in college for the first time, and I wept at the end of it. Just um, broke my heart. Well, no, joy. Um, it's a really important work, and Hawthorne's doing something strange in that work. If you, if you remember the work, you remember that the opening introduction is called The Custom House. It's a long introduction, and people are bored by it. They want to get through it so they can get onto the story. Hawthorne, why does he write that? When you've got this, what, what in literary circles we'd call a romance with Hester, Prynne, and Dimsdale, and their, their illegitimate child, because it's all about that A, that adultery, and the sin of adultery for the early Puritans. I'm calling that an epic in this sense. It's about a refounding. Hawthorne is taking that Puritan spirit and turning it on its head. Um, why the custom house? Because the tendency of critics reading Hawthorne and Melville both was to look at these stories as unbelievable. They're not real because we're already in a materialistic world, you know, already then. So he goes through this long custom house episode. Why? To, to ground us in the real world so that when he gets to the letter A at the, at the end of the introductory section where he comes across this letter and then we get the story of it. Because he wants us to trust him to believe in that story because in lots of ways it seems so unbelievable. Now what's going to happen with Moby Dick? How many people are going to put down Moby Dick and say, improbable, unbelievable, are you kidding? These things don't happen. Melville's covering his tracks. Look at the monstrous pictures of whale. Fifty-five. You don't. Monstrous pictures of whale. Less less erroneous pictures of whale, of whales in paint. We already got the cytology. We already got Moby Dick, chapter forty-one, and we also got whiteness of the whale. In every one of those story or chapters, he's dealing with the way whales are depicted, the way they're represented. Why does he do that over and over again? Because We've got to trust this man and believe in it because otherwise our response at the end is going to be what? Are you kidding? These things don't happen. So the reason he's writing these chapters and the reason there's so many of them is he wants us to see that there are different aspects to the world that ordinarily we don't see and trust that his representation of them is faithful, that we can trust him, believe in him. He's not a man to take things lightly. He's not a man to present things rashly. He's careful. He's conscientious. He's fair. He puts all sides out. If we're in the presence of a man like that, we're less likely to blow him off at the end when all these strange things are going to... And, and I've already told you, if you read the Norton Anthology, which is a collection of modern thinkers on it, the modern thinkers are going to go, inscrutable mystery. Inscrutable mystery. Inexcable. Can't understand it. It's, there's a lot here that you can't understand. The modern is going to look at this. The, the literary people who love it are going to say, inscrutable mystery. You can't see through it. Kids coming out of high school reading the book are going to say, nice whale story. Um, 
So these are not boring chapters. They're, they're Melville's effort to help us learn to trust him. He, he gives such a disinterested view of so many things that when we come out of these chapters, we're less likely going to quarrel with him. We're going to see that this man presents things in a fair way um, so that when the end comes, I think we're less likely to just blow it off. That's the first. The second is this, that Ishmael's changing. He's learning. And I can't state this strongly enough. We just got through with that, what's the Moby Dick chapter 41? The opening lines, I, Ishmael, was among them. My shouts were greater than theirs. He has identified himself with this quest. He's one with it. He says, I, I was welded into it more tightly. You know? um, but here, what's happening in all these chapters, chapter by chapter, He's presenting aspects of the, of the voyage um, in a way that shows he's open to what I'm going to call the analogy of being. What he's teaching us to see is that there is this interconnectedness between all things in nature. So we can get bored, but if we're bored, I'd say, isn't that part of the problem with the modern world? We don't look at things anymore. He doesn't look at anything and not find meaning in it. Why? Because if God created this universe, the Logos is present in everything. You've been hearing me hit you over the head with that since Dante, even before. That if the mark of God is everywhere in creation. In a scientific world that's taken God out of it, where do we find him anymore? God's dead. And that's 19th century. He doesn't, he, he, he's not here, he's dead. God created the universe then we should be able to find his presence. What's Ahab's quest? To get at that intelligence that to his mind seems sinister. Is that God? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, he, he doesn't, just, he says what the principle, he doesn't name it, but, it, but, but it's got to be the ultimate source of things right. for him. Right. So um, remember, Ishmael, Ishmael is, is in a strange way opening to things. And now think about the difference. Ahab wants to get from here to there. It's that male efficiency to get this done. Ishmael is asking questions. He's looking at things and finding meaning everywhere. So at the, at the, at the center of this setup chapter is this notion, it's, it's not named this way, is the logos. There are analogies between things. There are affinities between everything in nature. Why? Because their ultimate source relates them. They all come from him. Are you following? So, so it's interesting. He, he's with the quest, but something's happening. He's learning to see something. Ahab doesn't. Um, now, just quickly, turn to um, chapter um, 58, 330, 332. I hope this is right. Yeah, This is the um, chapter in which he comes across this Brit, this yellowish, flowery sort of thing on the surface of the water, the ocean. And it's important because very often the whales go to, go, go to it, so they know that if, they, if Brits are up, they can get a whale. But look at the, um, he, he ends up talking about um, the, the work that they do at sea 
and the frequency with which with which um, ships go down. Um, and here at the bottom of 332 he says, the first boat we read of floated on an ocean that which Portuguese vengeance had whelmed the whole world without leaving so much as a widow. What was the first boat? Those of you in mass should know it because it's come up recently. Noah's Ark? Noah's. <laughs> We've been talking, about, I mean, the Noah story has been the reading this last week. The same ocean rolls now, that same ocean destroyed the wrecked ships of the last year. Yea, foolish mortals, Noah's flood is not yet subsided. Two-thirds of the fair world is yet covers. Wherein differ the sea and the land, that a miracle upon one, not a miracle. He's, remember, we've been talking about the differences between land and sea. Here, he's explicit. Type of 333. Not only is the sea such a foe to man who is an alien to it, but it's also a fiend to its own offspring, worse than the Persian host who murdered his own guest, sparing not the creatures which itself has spawned, like a savage tigress that tossing in the jungle overlays her own cubs, so the sea dashes even the mightiest whales against the rocks, and leaves them there side by side with a split wreck of ships. No mercy, no power, but its, but its own controls it. Painting and... and um, snorting like a, oh, serpentine and snorting like a mad battle steed that has lost its rider. The masterless ocean over, it's something that can't be conquered. I mean, this goes back to Homer's The Odyssey. Go down a few lines. Consider also the devilish brilliance and beauty of many of its most remorseless tribes, as the dainty, embellished shape of many species of sharks. Consider once more the universal cannibalism of the sea, all whose creatures prey upon each other. So, the sea, remember, is an image of what's not natural to man. It's dangerous. It seems in its nature violent. It, it, it also, remember, is an image of grace. It's, it's where man goes to the threshold to find everything that's evil in him and the possibilities for grace. Um, 339, he talks about the line. Remember, um, um, the, the lines can easily get entangled. There's two harpoons in the boat, and you throw one, and they try to get the other one off, but sometimes they get entangled. Um, 339, in the middle of the page, thus the whole whale line folds the whole boat in its complicated coils, twisting and writhing around it in almost every direction. All the oarsmen are involved in his perilous contortions. He goes on, go to 340 at the very end. Again, as the profound calm which only apparently proceeds in prophecies of the storm is perhaps more awful than the storm itself, for indeed the calm is but the wrapper and envelope of the storm and contains in itself as the seemingly harmless rifle holds the fatal power and the ball and the explosion. So the graceful repose of the line as it silently serpentines about the oarsmen before being brought into actual play, this is the thing which carries more of true terror than any other aspect of this dangerous affair. But why say more? All men live enveloped in whale lines. All are born with halters around their necks. It's only when they're caught. So over and over and over again, we could do more. Um, um, we could do more, I, I don't want. Every chapter shows something, real thing, and it becomes um, a means of showing some analogous relationship to something else in the world. 
So he's beginning to see the interconnectedness of things. This logos, this, the analogies of being. They all have to have affinities if they come from the same God. How many of us see those things daily? How many of us are aware of them? Ishmael's learning, and hopefully we are too. Page um, 352. Um, this is Stubb full of himself because he's killed a whale. You know these chapters. I mean, he's funny. He just is so... Uh, there's no other word. He's just full of himself because he's, he's killed the whale. And now he wants to feast on it. Um, but one of the side effects of having this whale on its side is that it gets attacked by sharks. This is, these are two, two of the most important chapters in the book. They're going to set up with the Grand Armada that we'll, like, we'll look at next week. But here um, we get a, a view of the sharks and their life. 350, 352. About midnight that's, um, the steak was cut and cooked and lighted by two lanterns of sperm oil. Stubbs stoutly stood up to his spermaceti supper at the capstan head as if that capstan were a sideboard. Not with Stubb, the only banqueter on whale's flesh that night, mingling their mumblings with his own mastications. Do you hear the, the automatopoeia? It's like he's trying to imitate the 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 eating of the shark. Yeah, this, mingling their mumblings with his own mastications, thousands of thousands of sharks swim, swarming around the dead leviathan, smackingly feasting on its fatness. You can hear the flapping, the snapping. Um, <laughs> this is one of Melville's more poetic passages, I think, the word. Um, the few sleepers below in their bunks were often startled. They go on. Um, now, Stubb is going to call um, Fleece, and he tells him um, on the bottom of 352, here, take this lantern, um, now then go and preach to him. And Fleece, he's, who's black, starts preaching to the sharps because he's following orders. Stubb is really pushing him around right now. He's not being very good. He's too full of himself. Fellow critters, I've, I've ordered here to say that you must stop that damn noise there. You hear? Stop that damn smacking. Up the lip. Master Stubb say that you can fill your damn bellies up to the hatchings, but by gore, you must stop that damn racket. He goes on. And, and Stubb begins to chastise him because he says, you don't, you're not supposed to preach that way. Now hold on to this for a second because set this Nick to Father Mapple's preaching. Because Stubb is saying over and over again, you can't get angry like that. You've got to be more gentle in your preaching if you're going to convert these sharks. Um, so Stubb goes at it again and um, Stubb has nothing good to say about his preaching. All he can do is criticize him. And more importantly, he's really angry at Flask because he overcooked his steak. So he's, he, here he is. He's getting back at him. Um, he's, he, the victim part of his is getting back at Flask, if I can put it that way. Um, Top of 356. Um, pass, um, oh, and um, Fleece talks about going to heaven, and Stubb wants to know how he's going to manage that. And then he says, 356 at the top, You have once in your life passed a holy church in Cape Town. You doubtless overheard a holy parsing addressing his listeners. This is Mapple. Have you, Cook? And yet you come here and tell me such a dreadful lie as you just did, because he said he cooked the steak well. And 
Stubb is convinced that he overcooked it and he's really angry at him. So he tells him he's not going to get to heaven because he's, he's lying. So here in these comic scenes, remember, we're, we're being given analogies of other things, Father Mapple. All of us, when we're unhappy with what's been done to us. and um, Go down a few lines. So then you expect to go up to your main top, do you, Cook, when you're dead? But don't you know the higher you climb, the colder it gets main top? Huh? He, there's a modern skeptic. Didn't, didn't say that though, said Fleece again in the sulks. Um, and then finally at the end of the chapter, Stubbs says, tomorrow night I want you to cook it in a certain way, and he gives specific directions, and he's making it clear um, that he, he wants it a certain way. Fleece starts to leave, then he calls him back and tells him one more time to do something else. He calls him back again at the, bottom, at the very end of the chapter 357. Cook, give me cutlet for supper tomorrow night in the middle, in midwatch. Do you hear? Away you sailed in. Hello, stop. So he sends him up, pulls him, brings him back again. He's got him on a string and he's jerking him around. Um, make a bow before you go. Avast, heaving again. Whale balls for breakfast. He wants whale balls for breakfast. So he's lining up the meals that he's going to get off this and giving Fleece all these directions. And don't forget, Fleece, Fleece goes off. Wish, God, I can't. Fleece goes Wish by gore whale eat him <laughs> instead of him eat whale. <laughs> I'm breast if he ate more of shark than master shark himself. Yourself, muttered the old man, limping away. With such sage ejaculation, he went to his hammock. <laughs> um, I want to just read one more thing. Turn to chapter 66, the shark massacre. Page 362 is is the passage I want to look at. Huh? Sorry? We're getting... <laughs> Can you imagine the chore that she's going to have as we get older? God. God. Pray for my wife. Pray for me too, if you would. I'm serious. I'm serious. Um, 362. But in the foamy confusion of their mixed and struggling host, the marksman could... Overnight, they set up a guards. Kwiku's out there. He's stabbing at the sharks to keep them off because if they don't, when they wake up in the morning, they're just going to find a skeleton. The, the, the whale will be eaten. So you all have a picture of this, right? The whale is tied to the side. The Kwikwig and other men have a guard to use sharks and, I mean, lances to keep the sharks off. Um, and this is what happens. But in the foamy confusion of their mixed and struggling host, the marksmen could not always hit their mark. And this brought about new revelations of the incredible ferocity of the foe. They viciously snapped not only at each other's disembowelments, but like flexible bows bent round and bit their own till those entrails seemed swallowed over and over again by the same mouth to be oppositely voided by the gaping wound. Nor was this all. It was unsafe to meddle with the corpses and ghosts of these creatures. Um, they bring him... They bring one of the sharks up on deck. Um, quick, quick, no care what God made him shark, because the shark almost bites his hand off. Quick, quick, no care what God made him shark, said the savage, agonizing, lifting his hand up and down. Whether Fiji God or Nantucket God, but to God what made shark must be one damn engine. Is God, how could evil be in the world if it was created by a God and that God not be evil? There is a very dark pantheistic assumption here. If nature's got evil in it and God made it, 
So a lot of this stuff seems funny because it's ordinary. This stuff makes up our ordinary. These are people like us going about our daily jobs. But underneath all of these words, we're learning to see something else, okay? So in every one of these scenes, Ishmael is showing that there's this analogy to be. Now I want to take one minute and then we've got to We've got to do the town hall in just a couple of minutes because we're time's, our time is up. But I want to do the town hall before we leave, and I'll do it very quickly. In this shark massacre, we, it, the Grand Armada is, is going to show the maternal side to these feminine mother whales. We'll get that in the Grand Armada. The shark massacre stands off on the other side. So both of these chapters need to be put together. Before we leave this, if all of these analogies hold, it seems to me Melville is asking us to see the relationship, the analogy between what these sharks do and what we do in our businesses. This is the dark spot I told you we'd come to. Okay. Um, remember the Pequod is an image of a ship going out. Um, fleece preaches to the sharks and the preaching is in human terms. Be this way, be this way, be this way, be with it. So everything about the chapter is inviting us to see parallels between the shark massacre and humans in this business enterprise. Now here's my question. In this competitive capitalistic world we live in, is there some way in which the sharks image exactly what we do with each other? Now I have this picture. They began by attacking the whale. Once the bozeman starts stabbing them, they start attacking each other and then they turn around and start eating their disembowelments. It, it's cyclical. It, it passes into the mouths, it passes out of their tail, and they turn around and gulf it. So they're actually eating on their own disembowelments. Every, whatever they gorge themselves that comes out, they swallow. Is that clear? They start on the whale, then they start attacking each other's, and then they begin to turn on themselves and eat their own whatever's expelled. Can we find in that an image of what we do <laughs> in our business world? Greed, effort. Turn on one another. Turn on one another, it's there, yeah, for sure. To get ahead. Carry it to, I mean, yes, so very often, I mean, the, the image of our work world is watch your back, um, I've got your back. You have to kill somebody, that is to use them as an object to get over them. Always moving up means you have to um, get better than somebody else to get them out of the way. So there's this powerful tendency in an objective world or in an economic world to treat other people as objects. This has been, this is as old as the Iliad. But here it's much darker, it's much more vicious. You attack each other, you know, you want to get ahead, so you're all aiming for the same thing. Suddenly it makes you go turn on each other, but carry it out. How, how does it end up where a person actually begins to feast himself on his own, what's the word, expellings, whatever you... By the way, remember this. Remember, remember when we did the Odyssey in the cave, the, the polyphemus image Cyclops was feasting on Odysseus's men, he gobbled them up. And I remember I made the connection at the end. I read that passage where the night before the final battle, Odysseus is praying, and he hears this cry, and it's an old woman who says, 
I hope this is the last day because these men have been grinding down my knees. That the Cyclops, I made this argument, the, the Cyclops is an image, the archetypal image of the beast and the suitors. They're feeding on Odysseus's home. Anybody who's allowed this whole question of justice and anybody who's allowed to just take somebody for granted is feeding on them. And remember what, we, and so that was early on in the Odyssey. In the Divine Comedy, the, the, the whole action towards the end of the Inferno moves towards feasting images. Um, Ugolino feasting on Rogerio's head. Adam thirsting. Satan feasting on those three men. Why? Because it's an exact inversion. This, is, this goes to the sacrament again that I mentioned a while ago. This is an exact inversion of Christ offering himself as bread and wife, wine for us. So the, 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 the choice again that we're faced when we're wounded is to either be a victim or join Christ in a self-sacrificing act, the cross, that, that offers ourselves to another. So here, I want, so I'm just recalling, you know, this imagery has been with us from the beginning. Here it is in a shark imagery, and my question is, how is this an image of the dynamics in a business world? And the last one, how, how, do, how do humans finally turn on themselves and eat their own entrails, the, the stuff that they spew out of themselves? Find that in the business world. Can anybody? You're following the question, yeah? Can anybody find that? Did you? Yeah, Go ahead. Just that you, you get so wrapped up in that endeavor that you lose yourself, you lose your soul, you lose, you're not in touch with the part of God that is within you. Yeah. And Somehow you feeding on yourself, too. I mean, that's the image here. You're... What becomes center in your world doesn't allow you to even see what you're. Yeah. 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 I think in, in some cases your job becomes who you are and so you lose yourself and you lose what really what Christ has has for you. It's just that most people when you say, you know, tell me about you, first thing they tell you is what they do. Mm -hmm. What their job is. Not what I am. No, that's right. What, what it's, I, yeah. it's what I do. Right. Well, a large part of who we are is what we do. I mean, but but you, but you're right. I mean, both of you that you can become so consumed by it that you lose. Remember the metaphysics of hell. Those of you who did it, because remember, all the way through hell, people keep losing their identity. It changes. It shifted. Their head gets cut off. In the in the level of thieves, they interchange beings. They have no identity. They take they take things that don't belong to them, and they become other than they are. So the whole metaphysics of hell was to show us, remember the, the first contrapasso, the first contrapasso was the cave. The contrapasso's in hell, remember, each person is trapped in his own actions because that's what he makes of the world. He becomes one with them. And then as you get deeper and deeper in hell, you find that, that souls lose their identity. They become something they did by committing that sin. That's what they become. They lose who they are. So, here it gets darker. With Melville, we're at sea. I mean, th this is like Dante's Divine Comedy. It's a critique of, of the commercial republic. Here it's a critique from a modern who, um, who has a Protestant background behind him, and at a time when America's become modern, and so we're way past Dante's world. 
in one sense. We're not, but I mean, historically we are. But this is a darker world. So the, the image of the sharks feasting on each other here is, I think, supposed to be an image, a reminder of something sharkish in As man. In, we are so wrapped up in it that we actually destroy ourselves. Our identity, I mean, I think that's what both of you were saying, yeah, yeah. that we lose who we are. Yeah. Quickly, I'm going to do this very quickly. And in um, chapter, I'm going to just do this in two minutes. 297. Thanks, Doc. 297. She wants to get home. (laughs) 297. The townhouse story. Now, remember what I said about all those chapters having to do with representation of whales in art? Because this whole question of how you represent a whale is at issue here, because most people are going to blow this story off. So, so Melville is doing everything he can to make us aware of how whales are represented. So we got all these chapters. Here in the town Ho, we get a story of a man named Steelkilt and Radney, the mate, and what happens to them. But the, one of the important things that can, can get overlooked here is, how did Ishmael get this story? Is he reliable as a narrator? We learned that when Ahab boarded the town Ho, it's a gam, the exchange news, that Tashtigo learned from one of the town Ho sailors about this episode. And an important fact to remember here is neither the captain of the town Ho nor Ahab know this story. They're in a dark about something having to do with Moby Dick. Now this is crucial for a couple of reasons, but remember that. So Ishmael got it, Tashtigo got it from a town host salesman, Ishmael gets it from Tashtigo, and the version he, he gives us here, he ironically um, takes from the version he told a group of Spanish friends in Peru. Now why is he doing that? For two reasons. One is he's covering his tracks. He wants us to know that there are some things he gets from other people, because he wasn't there. And there's something at the end, I want to wait till we get there. But here's the story. The story that he got from Tashtigo and from the townhouse salesman is this. Um, the townhouse started leaking because it was presumably cut by a swordfish. And it's taking water and Radney tells Steelkilt to mop. Um, Radney is really an arrogant, envious sort of person, and he's, he pushes people around, in a, probably in a more um, openly um, offensive way than Stubb does with fleece. But it's pushing people around the way bosses sometimes can. And um, Steelcoat refuses to do it, and, and because he's the head of a group of people, they follow him, they mutiny, they're captured and put below deck and starved. Um, and it, um, it forces each one of the men, one by one, to, to return to the crew in obedience. Steelkilt is the last one, and when he finally comes out, the captain's going to punish them by flogging them all. And Steelkilt turns to the captain and says, if you touch me, I will kill you. And it's so threatening, and the captain has something of a coward in him, I think. He doesn't. He turns the job to Radney. Radney flogs Steelkilt, and Steelkilt says, vows, to get back, here's the, he's a victim, to get back 
and um, kill him. The men return to work. Steel Kilt is um, putting together this ball made out of stuff, and he finally gets all the stuff to to um, to make it. I think he did, he's going to um, use it like a hammer and crush Radney's head. The the day of that night, the, the night before he finishes it, the next day they're working. That night, Steel Kilt is planning to kill Radney. It's all set up. That morning, somebody sights Moby Dick, and they lower. And Radney, because he's a very, um, what's the word, over, he, he overdoes everything. Um, um, he, he's just violent in his actions. He's abrupt and stands up on the bow of his ship. And, um, and he gets knocked into the water and um, on page 314, he falls into the water and Moby Dick grabs him with teeth and takes him down to his death, so he dies. Now, there are two passages in here, on page 313 at the top. But gentlemen, a fool saved the word be murder from the bloody deed he planned for complete revenge he had and without being the avenger. For by a mysterious fatality, Heaven itself seemed to step in to take out of his hands into its own the damning thing he would have done. Here's an instance in which Moby Dick saves a man from damnation. Now this is the same whale that Ahab looks at as an agent of evil. So this is the counter story to the Ahab. And Ahab knows nothing about it. Okay? Now go to the end. Three, page 316, after the Spanish friends hear this story, they don't believe him. <laughs> what are high school students going to say coming out of, and college students say when they come out of a course who doesn't deal with the book the way that I am? Are you kidding me? Sure, nice, nice story. <laughs> the men say, unbelievable. It didn't happen. Page 316. Um, um, are you through, said Don Sebastian quietly. I am done. Then I entreat you, tell me to the best of your own convictions that your story and substance is really true. It's so passing wonderful. Did you get it from an unquestionable source? But bear with me. That is, this is unlikely. Who'd you get it from? Is it reliable? We're in the same world. He's doing what he's been doing for these set of chapters. He is getting us ready. And he's doing everything he can to protect the integrity of this story, its reality. Because he knows we live, in, by the way, you know this, that I, th or I think Melville was attacked by the press constantly, by the Protestant press, who objected because his, his work seemed so black, blasphemous. Um, um, we saw that with Ishmael, remember? Well, here it's going to be said here. Um, bear with me if I seem depressed. Also bear with all of us. They said they don't believe it. Is there a copy of the Holy Evangelist in the Golden Inn, gentlemen? Nay, said it. But I know a worthy priest nearby. So they're going to get a Bible, and they're going to get a priest, and have Ishmael. This is how, this is how serious it is. They, they cannot, they will not believe that. I mean, we've got to see that this, how serious this is. They want a Bible, and they want a priest, so he can swear on it, because it is so unbelievable. So that's, that's us. We're the readers, we've just heard it, we're going to finish this. I mean, the irony is we're supposed to, at the end of this, get a priest in the Bible and say, Ishmael swears, this really, did this happen? Nay, 
He says, um, but I know a priest, so they get the priest. And look at this. Though there are no auto defaits in Lima now, said one of the company, I fear our sailor friend runs the risk of the archiepiscopacy. Let us withdraw more out of the moonlight. I see no need of it. So um, Ishmael is going to be attacked by the, um, by the episcopacy of the church for, for telling these blasphemous <laughs> stories. I hope everybody's, I mean, this is funny, but there's an element of truth to it. Melville was attacked repeatedly for these sorts of things. So he knew it firsthand. So when he, t- when he mentions the auto de fe's, the um, Inquisition, mm-hmm. he suffered it firsthand. He's speaking from experience. He's told stories that were rebuked. Um, so this is now, so <laughs> here, and here's my question to you. Um, and, and, the, and his friend says, um, let, us withdraw, let us withdraw more out of the moonlight. I see no need. That is to perform this act. They've got to go into the shadow where people don't see them. So the guy comes with the priest in the Bible. Let me remove my hat. Now, venerable priest, further into the light and hold the holy book before me that I may touch it. So help me heaven and on my honor. He says, this happened. And he says, I know it to be true. It happened on this ball. I trod the ship, I knew the crew, I've seen men, and I've talked with steel kilt since the death of Radney. So everything he's doing is to give credibility to what most people are going to blow off as this fancy whale story. Just a question to leave you with. Where is, I mean, where is he on the Catholic Church? I don't want an answer. I just, but here, they call a priest, they, call, they bring the Bible out, he's got to swear on it. Um, on the fringes of this world is this Catholic world that um, was a terror to Protestants. And Melville keeps bringing it in in these little subtle ways. Um, what's his attitude? Where? That's not a big question. I mean, it's not our concern. I'm just throwing it out. But here, once again, Ishmael is doing everything he can to move the story forward, but in a way that strengthens our trust our convictions in him. So he's just given us an example of a scene in which men could not believe the story they told him. It's the counter story to Ahab's. This is a story in which Moby Dick actually providentially seemed to, to keep a man from damning himself. So our way of looking at nature is getting deeper and deeper and more complicated. Okay. Sorry, it took so long. Sorry. So next week we do the next 20, I don't know what the, whatever the, the next set of 20 chapters. Um, Let me tell you all, just so you know this, um, we, we will have the study guide ready for Monday night's class. It'll be too late for them, because we're, you know, we're gonna already do that. If any of you wanna pick up study guides, I think what I'm going to do is, is put them in the office with the books. So if any of you are here during the week and want to get the study before next Friday, just go by the office and you can pick one up. Okay.